Welcome back to The Common Christian Diet. Special thanks to Debbie Forrest for letting me use her music. That's her song called Born Bad, and you can find it on Spotify and iTunes. The Common Christian Diet is really a testimony about God turning my life around over the past decade or so. I've been telling stories about who I used to be and how I used to think. I lived my life believing in God but not following Him. I went to church, but I didn't really know Jesus. And then I found myself in my mid-30s, divorced, lonely, and lost. But God had been patiently waiting for me to call out to Him so He could step in and clean up my mess. If you haven't already, be sure to go back and listen to all the episodes in order. Not only will you get a better understanding of where I started with my spiritual journey, but you might also pick up a diet or exercise tip along the way. Today's episode is called The Recipe Book. Now, I just mentioned that all of my stories up to this point have been about my past when I was in my 20s and 30s. But today, I'm going to talk about a current event in my life since it's relevant to my topic. As I'm recording, it is March 3rd, 2021, I'm 45 years old, and I am just now learning to cook. Maybe that sounds strange since I've been telling all these stories about dieting and exercise and healthy habits, but I never once mentioned cooking. Preparing something edible was my mantra for years and years. I just never learned to cook. Before I left for college, I knew how to make spaghetti and other simple things that came from either a box or a jar. Shortly after college, there was really no need to learn to cook because I got into such a health food kick that I literally stopped caring what food tasted like. Every meal was planned and every calorie was counted and tracked in a spreadsheet. I consumed food like most people take medicine, prescribed food in a measured quantity at a specified time of the day for a desired effect. At one point, I was known at work as the green bean queen because I could be found at the microwave preparing a cup of green beans every day at 3 p.m. And I don't even like green beans, but it didn't matter because I could eat an entire cup for only 31 calories and get nutrients like vitamin C and K. I no longer remember why vitamin K even mattered, but I'm sure it made sense at the time. Then, after the health food obsession part of my life was over, learning to cook just never made its way up my list of priorities. But in recent months, I guess I just ran out of excuses and now I'm putting in the effort to make better meals for my family. I don't have super high expectations of myself, but I am hoping to have a handful of meals that my son says, hey mom, that was good. Now there is a plethora of information available out there on cooking. I could literally spend hours a day looking up recipes, researching online tips, and reading articles on tried and true methods for slicing an onion without crying. I found when I tried to do research on my own, I just got overwhelmed and frustrated and ended up making pancakes for dinner. It's not that the information I need isn't available, it's that there is so much information available. I couldn't figure out where to begin. I really just wanted someone to hand me a few recipes that are meant for a beginner and say, hey, try these. So I turned to my friend Jan and asked her for help. Jan is someone who not only loves to cook, but loves to bless others with her cooking. She'll bake a cake from scratch for someone's birthday, send food to her husband's office to share with coworkers, and even host little baking with Jan parties at her house to teach people like me how to navigate the kitchen. Jan was happy to help teach me, and she started by asking a very simple question. What type of recipes did I want to learn? Uh, that was the problem. 
I really didn't know. I had convinced myself that I couldn't cook for so long that I didn't even know what kinds of foods I wanted to make. What did normal families eat, I wondered. Jan tried again by asking me some basic questions about what meats we like, what kitchen tools I owned, and what exactly is it that I find so difficult about cooking. Then she gave me three crockpot recipes that she said could not fail. And she was right. I measured the ingredients, threw them in the crockpot, closed the lid, turned it on, and waited 10 hours to find out it was good. And that one small success motivated me to try the next recipe and the one after that. I share this story because I feel like my struggle with cooking is similar to the struggle many people have when they first try to read the Bible. Where do you even begin? The book is huge and there is just so much information to sort through. We could spend hours reading story after story about places we've never heard of and names we can't pronounce that we just end up overwhelmed and frustrated. When I was younger, I started to read the Bible a few different times, but I could never stick with it because I tried to read it like I do any other book. I opened it and started at page one. And after reading about God creating the universe in seven days, a talking snake, and people living to be 900 years old, I just put it back down and let it sit there for almost 20 years. Today, I think the Bible is an amazing book, and I love reading it, but I'm not going to lie. When I was younger, I was not impressed. There is a learning curve when it comes to reading scripture, and just like with cooking, if you start with just a small success, it can motivate you to keep going. So now I want to attempt to play the role of Jan and offer some help for anyone who struggles reading their Bible. I was in my late 30s when I finally made the decision to read the entire Bible cover to cover whether I enjoyed it or not. I knew some of the stories already from being in church, but if someone would have asked me what the Bible was about, I would have answered, uh, God. I was familiar with popular lines of scripture, and I knew about events like the burning bush, but I didn't have an understanding about what the Bible in its entirety is about. At that time, I didn't know the Bible was made up of 66 individual books written by a whole bunch of people over thousands of years. I didn't know why there were so many different translations and which ones might be better suited for a beginner. I'm not sure I even really understood the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When I committed myself to reading the Bible cover to cover, I truly had to start with the basics. So today, I'm going to cover some of those basics at a very high level. When I asked Jan for help learning to cook, let me tell you what she did not do. She didn't make me feel silly. She didn't try to cross-examine my life to understand how I made it to age 45 without mastering at least a handful of recipes. She didn't treat me like a child learning to make my first peanut butter sandwich, and she didn't set me up for failure with some expert recipes. She didn't judge. Jan just tried to understand my needs and offer help that was actually helpful. So for me to play the role of Jan, I want to offer help that is actually helpful. It doesn't matter if you're 14 or 84, whether you've been in church your whole life or never darkened the doorway. Reading the Bible is critical to getting to know Jesus, so I want to offer one explanation for why the Bible is so hard to understand at first, and then offer three little recipes for success. I named this episode The Recipe Book because reading the Bible could loosely be compared to learning to cook with a very old book of recipes. When I told my mom I was finally going to learn to cook, she sent me one of my grandmother's recipe books from the 1980s. It included 365 different recipes for chicken. 
I remember this recipe book sitting in my grandma's house, so in her honor, I really wanted to buy some chicken and get started. But as I flipped through the pages to mark the first recipe I wanted to make, I discovered that quite a few things have changed in the past 40 years. For instance, one recipe calls for a half cup of Madeira. I don't know what Madeira is. I tried looking it up online, but all I found was the country of Madeira. I thought maybe the ingredient might be Madeira wine, but I really didn't want to make a trip to the grocery store searching the aisles for an ingredient I wasn't even sure existed. So I skipped that page and moved on. Another recipe began with the instructions to take four Cornish game hens, cut them in half, and remove the backbone. They made it sound easy enough, but I have never even purchased a Cornish game hen, let alone performed major surgery on one. Plus, there are no pictures to show me what the final result is supposed to look like. I imagined myself serving four mangled birds to my family and decided to bypass that page as well. Other recipes use words like croquettes, provençal, and pilaf. And maybe I should know what pilaf is, but I don't, so I have no idea if it sounds yummy or not. Then I found an interesting recipe called grilled chicken with sassy sauce. I was very excited to make anything with sassy sauce, but it called for a tablespoon of liquid smoke, which of course I'm all out of because I've never heard of it. One page mentioned a sterno burner, which I don't own. Another said to poach a chicken as if I should know how to do that. And yet another said to spoon my Schadfreude sauce over the chicken and decoratively cut the pimiento. Page after page were recipes that were way out of my league. Out of the 365 recipes in that book, I can make like five things. So Grandma, I love you, and I'll think of you every time I make lemon chicken with almonds. Now the truth is that if I would have grown up cooking more with my grandma, I would probably be a lot more familiar with all these ingredients and cooking methods. My grandma grew up during the Great Depression and knew how to make everything from scratch without any of the modern conveniences like microwaves and air fryers. Here I am struggling to use a cookbook from 40 years ago. I wondered what chance I would have with one written when my grandma was a kid. Now to make the analogy complete, imagine a cookbook written thousands of years ago with recipes from remote parts of the world using foods that don't grow on our continent and tools or methods we've never heard of. How would we even begin to follow this recipe book if it started with instructions for threshing wheat or extracting oil from olives? This sets the stage for why reading the Bible can be so frustrating and confusing to us. It was written between 2,000 and 4,000 years ago from a different continent in a language we don't speak to a culture we don't understand. The Bible is translated from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek into more modernized English, but even the translation itself introduces confusion at times. But rather than getting into any of the specifics in the Bible that we find confusing, I want to give an overview. The Bible is a collection of 66 books that all tell one love story, the story of how much God loves his children. Now, the individual books are drastically different from one another, and if you just flip open the Bible at a random page and start reading, you might find an angry God or a God that is rebuking his people. Close and open again, and you might find that same God rescuing someone or lavishing his people with good things. The individual stories all work together to help us understand God as much as we are capable of understanding him. He reveals himself to us through scripture, and God is very, very complex. Now, the books of the Bible differ in how they reveal God to us, but they also differ in style and author and timeline. 
Some of the books were written primarily as a historical record of events, and they can be quite boring. Other books are poetic. Some read like an adventure novel. Then there are books of wisdom, prophecy, the Gospels, and a collection of letters written to the first century Christian churches after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So what type of book is the Bible? Romance novel? Autobiography? Documentary? A how-to book or maybe a mystery? It's really all those things, but the pieces fit together to describe a loving God. The Old Testament tells how God made a covenant and established the Jews as his people. He delivered them from the Egyptians and led them to the land of Israel. God set them apart from surrounding cultures by giving them specific rules to follow for what to eat, what to wear, and how to worship. He provided for all their needs, but warned them not to follow the ways of the surrounding cultures. The Jews would follow God for a while, but were easily influenced by the other cultures and began worshiping other gods. If you know the Ten Commandments, you know the first commandment God gave the people was, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. God would warn them over and over again, but they would just keep doing it until God would basically say, fine, have it your way. He would remove his protection from the people and they would find themselves in trouble. The Jews would cry out to God and he would forgive them and rescue them. Then they would follow God for a while and the cycle would repeat itself. Now, when I say the people would follow other gods, I don't just mean they dressed differently or ate something God warned them not to eat. It was really bad. The Jews were so influenced by other cultures that they were literally sacrificing their children to these false gods. Even though God performed miracles, sent messengers, and delivered his people over and over again, they just couldn't stay faithful. But throughout the Old Testament, God revealed to his people there would be a Messiah. God knew his people would always be rebellious, so he foretold of Jesus who would come and save the world from their sin. Then the Old Testament stops, and there is a 400-year period of silence. The New Testament begins with the Gospels, which are the four books written about the days that Jesus was on earth. Each of the Gospels tell similar stories, but they are written by four different authors, so they aren't identical. The Gospels focus heavily on what Jesus said and did while he was here. Jesus walked from town to town with his disciples for three years, performing miracles and teaching the people. Sometimes crowds of thousands would be gathered around to listen. Jesus taught about heaven and God the Father. He taught about money, love, sin, judgment, and repentance. Jesus also taught about how we should live, the evils of this world, Satan, and hell. When Jesus spoke, he used parables that included a lot of references to farming and animals and other things that don't make a lot of sense to us today. Before Jesus was crucified, he predicted his own death and resurrection to prepare his disciples for what was going to happen. After the Gospels, the book of Acts describes the birth of the Christian church. Jesus appeared to his disciples in the flesh after his death, and even though Jesus had predicted it would happen, they still had a hard time understanding what was going on. But he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and the disciples understood that Jesus was raised from the dead to establish a new covenant with people on earth. While the old covenant was specific to the Jews, the new covenant is open to anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. One of the most famous quotes in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Most of the rest of the New Testament is a collection of letters to these first century Christian churches. As these churches were forming, they needed a whole lot of help. These new Christians came from a variety of backgrounds, Jews, Greeks, Romans, some rich, some poor, men, women, etc. And because they were diverse, they had some conflict and disagreements on how to do things. Some of the letters were meant to set some ground rules based on what Jesus taught. Other letters were sent to encourage the churches to stay strong in the faith. Sometimes we think, oh, the early Christians had it so much easier than we do. If I would have lived back then, it would have been easy to follow Christ. But it's totally not true. The early Christians were heavily persecuted for turning away from their old beliefs. They were often ostracized by their families, displaced from communities, and even murdered. The church had to stick together and remind each other that eternity with Jesus was worth it compared to anything they had to suffer on earth. And that is still the same message today. The Bible closes with the book of Revelation, which is a very difficult book to navigate. It talks about the end times and the second coming of Jesus. Now, that was obviously not a very thorough overview of the Bible, and it doesn't even touch on how awesome Jesus is. But I wanted to draw attention to the motif, which is God loves us. Even when we rebel against him over and over again, he still loves us. He forgives our sins and invites us to spend eternity with him. But knowing God loves us doesn't necessarily make the Bible any easier to read. So now I want to give a few simple recipes for getting started. Recipe number one, start somewhere, start anywhere. The Bible does not have to be read in any particular order. In fact, the books of the Bible are not in a perfect chronological order. Some books are way easier and more fun to read than others, and it's okay to skip around. It's okay to just open the book at a random location and read a few lines. There is really no rule, so just start somewhere. Now, having said all that, if you're looking for a suggestion for a good place to start, many people enjoy reading the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament. If you look in the index, there are actually several John books in the Bible. The Gospel of John is the book that is just J-O-H-N and no numbers. Recipe number two. Select a translation that's easy to read and consider a study Bible. I have to admit I refused to purchase a study Bible in the beginning. I think it was a pride thing. Like, I somehow thought that if I was smart, I shouldn't need a tutor. But a study Bible gives all sorts of information about the culture, the timelines, customs, geographical references, or anything else that might be relevant to help the reader understand what's happening. For instance, many people like to start reading the Bible in the New Testament, which is great. But there is a lot of scripture in the New Testament that actually refers to people and places in the Old Testament. If you've never read the Old Testament, you might not know that Abram and Abraham are the same person. Jacob and Israel are the same person. And Sodom and Gomorrah aren't people, but two wicked cities that God destroyed. Study Bibles can help clear up confusion with things we're not familiar with. Now, as far as translation is concerned, some are a lot easier to read than others. I personally read the New American Standard Bible, but there are several good ones to choose from, and it's really about preference. Recipe number three. Assume the best. The Bible is about God's love for his people, but it includes a lot of terrible things like war and murder and famines and false imprisonments and deception and so on. There are many places in the Bible where the stories sound anything but loving, and it would be easy to start assuming God is not a loving God. But we need to always keep reading. 
God's word is way more deep than it appears at first glance. When we first start reading, we see the circumstances. But as we keep reading, we learn that God never handles situations the way we think he should. It's important to remember that he is a good and loving God, and just because we don't understand something doesn't make God wrong. Another area to assume the best is in the letters to the early Christian churches. These letters, most of which were written by a man named Paul, were written to address specific issues in the church, and it is easy to miss the point because we don't always understand the context. In today's world, it would be like if someone forwarded you an email. This email might be based upon previous conversations or meetings or circumstances that aren't spelled out in the email. It would be easy to draw a wrong conclusion about the intent of that email without knowing all the background information. I personally have read several parts of the New Testament and I thought, man, Paul's a real jerk. But I have learned Paul is indeed not a jerk. I was just missing a lot of really important background information. Before I close, let me read a small section of scripture from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. If you want to look it up, find the book of Ephesians starting with chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 2 verse 5. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I lived a long time where I was able to prepare food for my family, but I really couldn't cook. I could make sandwiches and slice fruit and heat things up in the microwave, but I couldn't walk up to a pantry full of food and make a meal from scratch. When I finally decided to get some help, I turned to my friend Jan. She gave me some recipes for success, simple recipes meant for a beginner so I could have some success in the kitchen. And it worked. Those recipes helped me gain a little confidence and now I'm able to explore more difficult recipes. I'm still not up to poaching chickens or making schadfreud sauce, but I'm starting to get more comfortable and I'm even spicing up old recipes with my own new ingredients. There are a lot of resources out there on cooking that I could have turned to and many of them may have been helpful, but it was nice to turn to a friend. Jan is not a culinary chef, but she was more than qualified to teach me how to soften butter and sift flour and other little things I had apparently been doing wrong my entire life. Many of us know lines of scripture and can name some famous people like Moses, but we really struggle sitting down and reading our Bible. The Bible is the living word of God. It's big and intimidating and frustrating at times, but it's also life-changing. 
God reveals himself to us through scripture and we can read it our entire lives and never stop learning what God wants to share. I'm not an expert in the Bible, but I'm hoping this episode will encourage someone to open the good book and give it another try. Just a little success can go a long way. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode when I talk about one of the biggest moments in my life. Thanks for listening. I'm Paige, and this is The Common Christian Diet. Every day.